Welcome back to Arsenal Pass Time of the Round, episode 15. Today we're joined by Zach Bunn. Zach is the CEO of Team Covenant, an organization we owe a lot to as flesh and blood players. I spoke last episode about content creators like Hayden and I standing on the shoulders of giants, and Team Covenant is undoubtedly one of the creators I was alluding to. I've had the pleasure of meeting Zach a few times over the past few months. He is a fellow competitive player, content creator, and friend. Anyway, Zach, thank you for joining us, and how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, you know, some very nice things you said about us uh, in that intro, but uh, both Stephen and I have been very much, and a bunch of people on the team, enjoying the content you guys produce. Uh, you really are doing a, a huge service to the community, and uh, it's it's great to see, I think, for a long time, we, we've been creating content for a while, uh, Covenant, and uh, the community-driven content is some of the most important uh additions to a lot of these games and communities and I, a lot of times i'll describe it as like the heartbeat of a lot of these communities so you guys are doing a great job and uh appreciate being able to be here and just excited to talk about flesh and blood yeah super excited to have you on and i know we've talked a little bit but let's just jump right into with uh kind of team covenant yourself let's i know that the story is a bit long but yeah. in the in the most digestible kind of abbreviated way let's talk a bit about like the history of team covenant and specifically how you guys um transitioned into flesh and blood and also, of course, Steven, yourself, I know you you're actually are very big fans and um, play the game a lot. So just tell me a little bit about your personal journeys as well. As well. Yeah, so uh, I'll try to condense this as much as possible. We do have an about page on the website that goes into this, and we talk about it. I think we did a, um, a summary podcast back at like the end of 2018 or 2019, uh, where we kind of took an hour just to really go into the history. But short version... Grew up playing tabletop games together, Stephen and I. That's really how we met and became friends. And we're from a really small town, a couple thousand people, one stoplight. Uh, didn't have a game store. Yeah, <laughs> definitely small. Uh, didn't have a game store, but my uncle had a uh, movie rental business, like he did in the '90s mm-hmm. and uh, '90s, early 2000s, and started playing these games. And I started hosting events out of the back of uh, out of his movie uh, store. And then uh, Steve went off to college. He was a year ahead of me. And then I went to college the next year. But I uh, moved to Tulsa to go to school. And Tulsa is the town slash city we're in now. A little bit bigger than where we first started. And started going to some events and stuff. And, you know, we'd travel up to Tulsa. It was about an hour away from where we grew up uh, to play in bigger tournaments and stuff together. That was all, uh, you know, just... <laughs> That was great. Uh, looking back, that's some of my favorite uh, times and memories is preparing for and traveling to these tournaments and playing in these tournaments together. And that's really where it all started. Uh, but I had some bad experiences with uh, a few online websites, you know, ordering singles for the game I played. Um, and, you know, we grew up playing uh, not Magic, basically. So we were a little too young to get in on Magic when it first came out. Uh, Pokemon was the game that I started with when it first came out when I was, uh, you know, eight or nine. And kind of throughout all my teenage years and whatnot, we always played the games that weren't magic, right? So that was Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z and Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, uh, both the CCG and the TCG, etc. And so a lot of times growing up, we'd go to these tournaments and our games were always kind of second fiddle. So we mm-hmm. get kicked off tables because, you know, it was the middle of the Pokemon tournament, but it was time for magic. So, you know, move along kind of a situation. Uh, but when I was in college, had a couple of just lackluster experiences, uh, stores, you know, with the, <laughs> I, I could I could dive into some of these stories for a long time. But anyways, not not great experiences. So the nucleus of, of where we started, which is we're coming up on 15 years, which is crazy wow. um, to think about uh, uh, all the way back then, but is 
essentially just this overwhelming feeling, uh, and it was way more true back then than it is now, even though it is somewhat true now, that really there were a lot of people in the industry that just didn't care. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't really care about uh, the games or the communities. Um, you know, they, a lot of the store owners back then, you just got into it as kind of a hobby. They liked the games that they were playing, whether it was D&D or Magic or whatever. They saw an opportunity to open a store, kind of end of story. Um, and for us, we, you know, tabletop has always been this incredibly meaningful uh, vehicle. Uh, it created a lot of our best friends, created a lot of our favorite memories and all of our favorite times in our life. Uh, and so we always thought this was like an incredibly important thing. And it just felt like no one really cared that much uh, or treated it like it was super important. And it, it, that was particularly true if you weren't playing Magic, right? Like if you were playing... Star Wars Destiny, or if you were playing, uh, you know, any number of games that we played throughout our lives, Spoils, Monster Apocalypse, on down the list. Um, it was just tough, you know, so the stories weren't great in general, but then they particularly weren't great if you weren't playing the one game that they cared about. So a lot of where we come from is, uh, you know, trying to offer uh, a community and a way to get these products and somewhere to play. Uh, both locally here in Tulsa and online through the services we offer there, uh, to to people who uh, love the games that they play uh, but don't really have anyone around them that uh, shares that, right? And sometimes that means you don't have players around you. Sometimes that means you have stores that don't care. Uh, so even when you look at something like our subscription service, which is one of probably the thing we're most known for at this point, um, that was really engineered to serve people who didn't have stores that were serving those products to them, right? We started actually with a subscription for LCGs back in 2011 um, before we even had a physical store. And the recognition was that like, if you play the Lord of the Rings LCG, just economically, we talk about this a ton on our podcast, um, most stores don't have a really good reason to care about that game. Like, it, you know, you might make six, six or seven bucks per pack per player once a month, can't really run tournaments, economically fundamentally it just doesn't make a lot of sense um and then when you have magic right next to it which might make you thousands of dollars per player per year you can see why stores uh <laughs> care more about magic and the people that play magic so um that that's really the kind of the the underlying nucleus of what we do and it, that's spun out in a lot of different ways and we've evolved over the years but um ultimately that that's where it started and and you know you you talked earlier before we got on the the first our recording about uh, being excited about our future. So kind of the driving uh, mission behind what we're doing is uh, ultimately to perfect or to build the perfect place to play these games. Um, so we're still in that pursuit. Uh, if, you, if you're watching this and you follow us on streams and podcasts and stuff, you know that we're actively working on what we call 3.0 of our store. So we opened our first store in 2012. We moved in 2015 to what we call 2.0. We're ramping up into 3.0 just before uh, the pandemic hit in 2020. So we had to slam on the brakes and mm -hmm. uh, take a little bit different of a path. But that's the shortest version of that I think I can give you. Uh, that's not like a one sentence uh, answer. Yeah. yeah. And we, we've talked about this before. And the, this kind of the, the future really gets me excited. Um, I know we specifically kind of talked about some details around like what, you know, what some of the core tenants were in the store's design. And it, it sounds like it's going to be a good place to play. And I'm really excited. Um, I think it's going to be super successful. Obviously, we've got you know, two, you know, some very passionate people behind it. Um, but about Flesh and Blood, too, um, I believe that the way you guys got into Flesh and Blood is that you were sent the you were sent the book, the lore book, and then you know, maybe didn't pay as much attention to it, picked it up one day, read the book, and they decided to try out the game. You and Steven are both seem to be very invested at this point, both as you know competitive players and also just as you know people enjoying enjoying what the game is. 
what, how did you kind of evolve to that? And like, what about flesh and blood really stands out to you where you're like, this is something where I want to devote like my time, right? Cause you know, there is, you know, sometimes stream time, but I know that, you know, the, the way I met Zach was actually at a road to nationals in Dallas and he just drove down there and is grinding his little butt off trying to get his invite, <laughs> you know, playing Bravo. So how do we yeah. go from, you know, picking up a game, you know, for a service and then falling in love with it? Yeah, so uh, kind of interesting. The way we found out about Flesh and Blood um, is they sent us a box that had like the lore book, and I think it was a box of Welcome to Wraith and the Welcome to Wraith starter decks, and it had a nice, um, really nice note card um, from Legend Story Studios. And you know, it, we uh, we've been doing this a while. We started on YouTube content back in like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Uh, and so over time, right, you do a lot of content and you, you become, there's a certain, uh, number of people around that just are aware of what we do. So we get sent games quite often, right? Uh, games will come in various shapes and sizes and packages and whatnot. Um, so it's not atypical, but early in 2020, that's crazy. My years are all messed up because <laughs> of the pandemic, but early in 2020, uh, we got that box that had the, uh, everything in it. And stood out to me immediately you know you have the nice note card with a handwritten note uh that's already a sign right because a lot of times you'll get like a, a box with like a, some decks in it or something and it might be a handwritten note but usually it might be a typed out note uh kind of a thing or maybe not a note at all they just sent you an email and you know sent something off to you and that's 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 fine but you could tell like there was a level of care here that was a little different and then I, you know, we opened a couple packs just to look at the cards and see what the card quality was like in the art and stuff. And uh, then I stumbled into that lore book. Um, <laughs> and I think I have, I have one right here, still sealed, That's actually. So nice. uh, but you can just tell, right? It's like this, uh, anything that's like uh, this gold embossed, I don't know what you even call that technique, right? It's like imprinted and it's like a shiny gold where the stuff's at. Um, that's that's very appealing to me. <laughs> this doesn't fall down on me. Um, anyway, so I got that book, started looking through it, and some of that art. I saw that Glint the Quicksilver art um, in the lore book. Then I saw the Solana art, and I'm and then I got to the Aria section. I loved everything about Aria, right? Um, so that that was just really impressive to me. So then we decided at the time we were streaming on Mondays, one 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 day a week. And so we basically put it on the schedule to stream it because it was like, ah, we'll, we'll check out this game. We'll learn how to play it on stream and uh, see what it's all about. So then we played it on stream, right? And um, <laughs> it was fantastic, right? <laughs> it's, that's the only way to put it. We played. We got done. I'd already read some of the lore book. And then we were talking about it after. And we were both kind of just like, you know, you want to play again? Ultimately, right? So that, that's, a good, that's a good sign. Uh, but then, actually, it, it kicked up a notch because our, our normal process when we find a game, next stop is actually to talk to the publisher. And there's a lot of reasons we want to do that, right? Um, if we're going to invest time and money uh, on uh, promoting and supporting a game and adding it to our ecosystem, right, it's a lot of work. And so we want to make sure that we philosophically align with the publisher. Uh, and then we also need to make sure that we, we're going to have products to sell if we're going to spend time promoting it, right, as a business. Um, and so, uh, started talking with Legend Story, ended up talking with James, and uh, just continued to be impressed, right? There were a lot of things he said in that conversation that stuck out to me. You know, mechanically about the game, I could go on and on about why it's a great system. Um, and it, system is the key word there. I think it's a incredibly designed system that is really, 
it gives borders that are really good for the designers to play in um, that aren't just creating new wild things that make old stuff obsolete, right? Uh, but not even talking about the system, just talking about the company. You know, the, the name of the game, Flesh and Blood, is about getting people together in the flesh and blood. Uh, I talked about, you know, our mission being we're trying to build the perfect place to actually play these games. So that, that aligns really nicely, right? Uh, a lot of people see us kind of as a content creator, online retailer kind of a situation, but that's not really the lens that we're looking at even ourselves in, right? That's, that's currently some of the stuff that's going on, but that's not, that's not why we're here. Uh, and things like being committed to sending most of the product to local retailers um, and uh, just recognition of what they were trying to accomplish and how they were trying to accomplish it. Uh, interestingly, I was having that conversation like a couple weeks into the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is a crazy time for everybody, us and Legend Story particularly. Um, and so it was just kind of a, a, a moment where I could tell you had uh, these people that had been working on something for a very long time. They had been building momentum. They ran straight into a pandemic. Uh, and, you know, they just cared a lot. And this game was really good. And it was really interesting. So it just made a lot of sense for us. We were really excited. It was really natural for us to want to support it and be on board. Um, and then, you know, we decided to, to, to start doing content and supporting the game in the middle of a pandemic where really no one was sure how anything was going to work out. Um, and, you know, looking back the, the past year, year and a half, it's crazy uh, what's happened for that game particularly. But uh, that was that was kind of the, I think the key things that happened to kind of push us in that direction. Great game, followed by impressive publisher, uh, and just a, throughout the whole process showing a ton of care. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, hey, sorry, I'm not going to interrupt you again. I was going to say, I did interrupt you before, so I'm going to let you ask your question. Here we go. Well, I'm, just, I'm just curious at the back of that. You know, obviously, you spoke about the, you know, LSS as a publisher and the conversations you've had with James. But, you know, Zach, you've seen a lot of TCGs and CCGs and LCGs over, over your years, right, um, come in and, and, and some, some be successful and, and some, you know, for periods of time, others not so much. Is there something about flesh and blood, you know, outside of what you just spoke about that you think means that it's going to have long-term success, if, if you think that at all? <laughs> I, I happen to think that, yes. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons, right? It, it ties in just, yeah, some of the stuff I said. One is the design of the game system. Um, I've never seen some a game, honestly, in all of the games we play. And we play a lot of the uh, old games on Thursdays on the stream. We do throwback Thursdays to all sorts of games. And... The, the systematic, the system of the game is so good uh, because, and, and a good example of this is, I think it's Barraging Beatdown from the first set uh, from Welcome to Wraith. It's basically the exact same card as one of the Earth cards we got in this Tales of Aria set. And it, the only thing different is that it's an Earth card versus not an Earth card, right? It's a generic that, that can happen. Um, and you see essentially all these little levers. And it's the fundamental of most attack cards, right? Have a cost, have a pitch value, they have a defense value, and they have an attack value, and they have a card text. So the from a game development standpoint, there are so many levers that you can pull um, that it's, it's going to be... I, I've seen so many games where they have to do big, crazy things every year just to, like, keep it interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but it... It feels like you know they could cha they could change one little stat and it's suddenly a whole different card and it keeps it really interesting for a long time. You pair that with their their kind of vision 
for the game itself, which it seems like they, you know, talking about the eight talents and having years of cards developed up front, um, it seems like they've really laid the groundwork to not run into, uh, you know, common development problems quickly. Uh, it, it may happen eventually. You just get to a point where you've kind of fully explored mechanics that you set out. But I think it's going to be a long time, honestly, before before that happens. Uh, and then you just look at their general behavior as a publisher, right? That was That was probably beyond the game, that was the most notable piece uh, of the early conversations. And when I say impressive, it's a lot of little things, right? It's the fact that you're in the middle of a pandemic, sales are basically none, and you're deciding to hit print on the next set anyway to make sure that you don't have a big delay between sets, right? Um, having the foresight to have the resources to do that, having the uh, conviction in what you're doing to, to go ahead and hit print at that moment. Because I'll be honest, right? Pandemic hits for us. Yeah, we're we're about to launch into a whole new 3.0 store zone, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm immediately like, we we weekend one is like I'm running the math. How long can we last if mm-hmm. revenue is totally shot, right? How long can I keep paying people? How long can I keep paying rent? Um, and so I think most publishers are probably when they're publishing a new game, especially if it's their first game. That game needs to be successful. It needs to be successful pretty quickly. Otherwise, that game goes away. That's why a lot of those 90 CCGs disappeared. Um, beyond the fact that there were a million CCGs, is it probably didn't have the ability to last four years, right? Uh, <laughs> to get to the point where you're actually sustainable, uh, whatever that ends up looking like. So um, all the way to just the even the recent uh, bannings, right, with Duskblade and uh, Seeds of Agony, Compared to Fantasy Flight Games' handling of like Destiny, which is their most recent uh, collectible game, the uh, fact that they're communicating that before a set comes out, they're mm-hmm. being honest about it, right? That, hey, we made a mistake, and here's what happened. Um, and that they're addressing it immediately instead of letting it linger in the meta, right? Or just let's let, just let Chain rotate out, right? They, they could have allowed the, the rest of the calling season, the rest of the uh, year to kind of play out. Chain probably rotates out. So, like... You know, how, how big of a deal is it to ban Seeds of Agony at that point? Or even Duskblade. Like, uh, we'll just let the Runeblades all rotate out. We'll lower their power level. Things will be fine. Um, so th- there's just that continued thread of... It's, it's care. Honestly, like, when I go back to the early Covenant story, right? It's not just caring. It's also uh, understanding, right? What it is to be a player of this game. And they weren't willing to let four or five months of the game keep being this experience because they thought there was a better experience they could offer. And so you just see those little signs, right? Uh, And it's clear they care. And uh, you build all this on top of each other. You then throw in, as it happens, um, the kind of uh, CCG uh, being on fire right now, right? That that element of the market. Um, And I I say this a lot, actually. It's kind of a comparable situation for me. But like uh, when I think about a calling or world championship for Fab, if you want to win, uh, I think you have to be incredible at the game. I, have to th- I think you have to be incredibly prepared for that particular meta, whatever that is. And I also think you have to get a little bit lucky, right? You need the right pairing. You need the right card to flip when you're draw. You know, you're, you're drawing off the top of your deck, and you just need the right cards to hit. Um, at some point in the tournament, right? You're playing 15, 16 rounds uh, against players that are all really good. Something's got to bounce your way. So. Legend Story situation, I think, is similar, right? I think they prepared for years. I think they were prepared for any situation to come their way. They are prepared for the pandemic to hit. They they had the resources to to weather that storm and the plan to do it. 
And then uh, they're also prepared for success, right? And uh, some things definitely bounce their way, but I, I feel like they were prepared to be successful. That's a good way to put it. Um, there's like a key word that you say, which is honesty. And I think that's like one of the most important things and most prominent things that Legendary Studio sort of, sort of emulates that I feel as a player. Um, is I feel like all the decisions they make for the game are genuinely what they believe is good for the game. Because like you say, when we talk about change, like it looked like Living Legend was actually, you know, changed around at a perfect time for change to kind of just rotate out after domination. But then we look at, you know, potentially a very uh, oppressive kind of, you know, series of callings and then nationals where chain might be very dominated. And they, you know, they took, um, they took kind of the, this is definitely the harder path, like definitely the riskier path to go ahead and ban scenes or ban. Yeah, because like, like it genuinely, like if, especially when we're looking at like, Say this is the explosion of fab, right? We had our proof of concept, we had our Vegas, we had that, um, and now we have an influx of new players. And the first thing these new players see is something like this. It's definitely there's a non-zero, you know, part of it <laughs> that is not good for the game, but they genuinely believe that this is going to lead to a better game, a better format, and in, you know, increase our player experience. So while you know, while the the method what may have been a bit jarring, I think as a player, I'm impressed, and I want to kind of like follow them more like it's it's it, i think it was actually kind of an incredible decision yeah Isn't that crazy and i and i think you know it could have been a moment 99.9 <laughs> percent .9 of other publishers just based on my experience would have handled that moment uh so differently even the reality that they already had the living legend thing built in i think that's a clever thing that they did mm -hmm. right non-rotation i think that's genius um most publishers wouldn't have done that right because they, they wouldn't understand how to handle that, how to, why rotation can be problematic, et cetera. Uh, but they already built that in. So like they had a solution and it could have been, hey, we'll just let this play out, you know, rotate out. And then we can say, look how smart we are. Like when things are a little too good, they go away and it's not a problem, right? Mm -hmm. and, and instead they were very proactive about it. So it just feels like they understand what it's like to be a player and what it's like to actually experience this game, which is not, uh, not altogether common when it comes to publishers and tabletop, honestly. Yeah, whenever someone talks about flesh and blood and, and what the what Alice's do well, I think you can sum it up. What I like to sum it up is they are players who have built a game for players, and they're introspective enough that when they make decisions, they think about those decisions as a player, not just as a business. Um, at the end of the day, which is is just fantastic for I think you know I guess. The growth of the game and why you know me and brendan have actually talked about this a lot recently around like the seeds banning and things like that that we feel optimistic about um even though you know this has happened the the game's um life looks good beyond this which is is, is great and we're actually gonna walk into a, a national season right or a calling season which i know you're both going to be playing some of those mm. that looks really healthy uh, whether it be the ptis whether it be nationals um and i think that's really exciting definitely yeah, yeah i think uh, you know, it, it just opens things up. But even in our testing, right, for uh, Vegas, it was so defined by chain, honestly. Um, it, it, it just started being, it. in my mind, it's like I have six or seven turns. And any card or any deck that can't get it done in six or seven turns goes out the window. Um, and that, that's fine. That's a fine time frame to go through in this game. But it, it makes me super excited, like for the uh, national championship, especially. Given the first U.S. national championship, it'll probably be the biggest event. Um, that, that weekend will probably be a giant event for Flesh and Blood. And it, the healthier that meta looks at that point, I think the better for the game. Yeah. And I'm excited to see what spins out. Uh, it's, it's super exciting, especially from, 
you know, kind of a competitor standpoint, the, the meta's cracked wide open and, you know, there is no real dominant strategy at this point. That's amazing. But there's one thing that you said that I think that I think is absolutely true, right? And that's you said that flesh and blood is kind of built to succeed or the way I, I've usually phrased it is built for scale, which is I look at, there's like, this happens only a few times kind of, I think throughout life is that you'll look at something and you actually, it'll look like genius. It looks like something that's just, you can't believe how it was engineered so perfectly. Like maybe it's that perfect book, something like that. When I look at legend story, I look at flesh and blood. That's honestly the way I feel. I mean, every time I think that the design space has been pushed, whether it's, you know, you know, I used to think, you know, okay, we can't keep getting four heroes. We can't then we have talents and we have this and all the power levels exist on this line at this like equation and it all, it always comes in so well and then we do have a problem like we do with chain you know it is handled correctly and it's it's amazing just i think from a like a business and company perspective the way that they've executed flesh and blood i know that it was designed um you know quite in advance before release the way that it has been executed and just kind of this what looks to be organic growth from like the outside in is just so impressive like you have to think this game is actually like it didn't release too long ago. We had COVID, which is probably one of the most disruptive things to ever happen to like, you know, most, a lot of industries. And then Flesh and Blood is is flourishing. It's, it's about to probably be one of the biggest competitive games in the United States and then maybe the world within, you know, a year or two. Um, and it's just incredible that, you know, James White and Incorporated, I don't know who was kind of there from the very beginning, was able to execute this. And I really, this is the feeling I got when I went to the 2019 calling. You know, the one where they put up $10,000 and less than 40 people showed up and they had to cancel their venue and do it in a game store. I went to like Subway with James and then to hear his passion and his, you know, just absolute preparedness to everything about Flesh and Blood. That's when I bought in. That's when I sold all of my magic cards. And I went to you know, went to Reaper Game Store, bought in, and then I was sold. This was the game that I was going to play. And it, it honestly looks like like a work of genius to me. And I think I think there's a ton of comparables to people getting ready for tournaments, right? Um, and it, it's just that when you're talking to someone who is very well prepared for a tournament and understands, right, and and put the work in and had the team around them to be successful, uh, it's different than someone that's kind of just flying by the seat of their pants and like I had this idea and I put this yeah. game out and like here we are, right? I'll see if it's successful. Um, and I think a lot of it's just the difference between. Um, being prepared and reacting, right? Proactive versus reactive. Uh, and nothing about what they're doing. We had James on the podcast almost a year ago now after the kind of like surge for Fab really happened for the first time. And I, I asked him like, does the success you've been seeing change anything for you guys, right? Like obviously like you couldn't have predicted it would be this successful this quickly, especially during the pandemic. But what does that change? And he was like, it doesn't change anything. It just speeds it up. So that was such a revealing answer to me because it was like, oh my gosh, like we were expecting to win. Yep. Right? When you talk to players that are really good at a game, it's that same vibe, right? It's like someone will be like, oh yeah, but I got you down to six. And then in your mind, you're sitting there thinking like, no, I had you beat eight turns ago. But you just didn't <laughs> see it, right? It's like in chess, if someone's like, oh, I got you down to three pieces. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, but I knew I had you in checkmate 15 moves ago, right? It's how that felt. Yeah, that's such a, yeah, I mean, that's such an exciting, uh, like you say, like a, a player building a game for players and being like of this mindset of like so determined to succeed. And obviously the three of us all feel very optimistic about the game. But Zach, I wanted to jump back and ask about something that you said earlier, which is, you know, your testing group. Um, you know, obviously you've taken the step from 
you know, playing this game off stream and being a proponent of this game to actually playing this game competitively. And, and um, Brendan said before, you know, you traveled to some roads nationals. So how did you, you and Steven take that step to decide to want to play this game competitively and, and in the end go to Vegas? And I assume that you're going to be going to a few more callings as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm fortunate enough that, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to go to all four of the Collins this year in the U S so I'm super excited about that. Um, so, you know, we, we, like I said, we grew up playing these games. We grew up as a team, uh, traveling to events and competing and that whole thing. So it's, it's an old hat for us. It's just been a minute since this many, uh, one of the, the unique parts of flesh and blood for me as well is it's, the theme and the way it plays and the way it looks is appealing to people from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, and for me particularly, that means that, because i played a ton of different games, right? Mm-hmm. And there are people I know from so many different games playing this one game. Uh, it's it's wild, right? I have friends that I made from Destiny, from Game of Thrones, from Star Wars X-Wing, from Star Wars LCG, from Monster Apocalypse, from Spoil. Like, it's just, it's just like crazy. Um, so it's really cool because I have a lot of friends that there's not there's there's crossover there's not a lot of crossover between because they didn't play the same games, uh, but in Flesh and Blood that's that's a little different. So let's uh, just say you know we're playing the game on stream, pandemic's happening. You can't really compete at the game at that point. Um, neither Stephen and I are, are big. Uh, I wouldn't say proponents. I think I'm fine with it, but we just don't enjoy playing like via TTS uh, or any of the online modes. We, we're into tabletop games, so we like hanging out in person and playing games, right? Um, and so during the pandemic and whatnot, it's just like there was no reason to be hyper-competitive about it. We were just enjoying the game and exploring the world and doing a lot of Sealed and Blitz and slowly making our way to Constructed. Um, but in, in my mind, right, it was like this is a game I could take very seriously at some point if, if, if I want to flip that switch. And uh, so we started playing Classic Constructed in January on stream that we were doing blitz and sealed all the way up to that point and after about a month of constructed it was just like my goodness right this game is phenomenal it's got all the goods we started talking about sideboards and like it was just like and 40 health is so much different than 20 health it's unbelievable um so that happened and then uh you know tournaments start happening so starting to feel that itch hap- you know coming along it's like oh and then they announced the calling series right and we we'd already been taking it more seriously at that point we were playing more we were talking more about it we were building decks we were playing on the side more uh but then the callings got announced and the road to national season and then we just totally flipped the switch right um at least I, that's when I flipped the switch. So I, I signed up for the Collins. Originally, I didn't sign up for Cincinnati. Um, and that's when it was basically like, uh, you know, I, I sent out the, the Ravens, so to speak, to all my closer uh, card game friends that were playing. I was like, look, pretty much every Saturday, my house, be there. We're going to test. We're going to jam. We're going to go. Uh, of course, the Saturdays we're going to events and stuff don't count, whatever that ends up looking like. So started preparing started playing steven wasn't playing in any of the uh road to nationals he had stuff going on the the weekends we were going to those events um so uh, i went to a, I, w- I was prepping for and played in that first road to nationals and uh, i was playing bravo who i'm a, a big proponent of and i went four and two had a great day i bubbled out i think it was like 10th place or something but that was my first event since before the pandemic and you know it was 60 plus people sold out event full room of people competing at a game 
and uh, it, like literally the game I was competitive before before this was Destiny, and the last uh, I had we we were planning to prep, prep for and go to the World Championship in May of 2020, and then that got canceled, of course. Um, so it was just a very natural uh, kind of had a nice break from uh, Destiny and competitive in general, and then it was just time. Uh, so I went to the event and got hooked again, right? I was fully, got home from that event, and I was like, all right, you don't know. I, I, th this game seems way bigger. There's way more prizes on the line. There are really good people that play this game a lot more than I do. And so you just don't know where you're at, right? So it could be that I show up, I go two and four, and I'm just not even close. Um, but I could feel, I, both, both games I lost, I felt like I lost because I made mistakes. And I knew what those mistakes were. So that's a, like a very uh, tantalizing thing. It's like, oh, like I need to try that again because I think I can get closer. So then the next weekend it was in Edmond and um, I went four and two again. I just lost later. So I actually made it into the cut. And my last round loss was against Dash playing Bravo. So I didn't even feel bad about that one. Um, and I actually, that's the tournament I played Brendan at. That was, dunked, a, that was a great game. Swiss. Gave me that early <laughs> loss. I squeaked in at eighth somehow because yeah. Zach did so well. It's the only reason I got in was because yeah, you did well. That's true. I, you're, I basically, you're welcome for that. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so then I made top eight, and then I had this just heater of a game against a prison player, and I got so close. I felt like I had the game for like five turns in a row, and I just couldn't quite win classic prism situation right but he was on his last four cards of his deck and he was finally able to poke one damage through to kill me uh and then so then i'm just like super in right it's like i know i'm good enough i know i'm close i just I, we're, let's go now i'm fully fully in uh but then for steven it was kind of funny because he was coming to the practice sessions and we're playing on stream we're talking about it a lot he was playing azalea uh he has that you know hope and a dream to make something that shouldn't be any good work uh, and we were testing, and it was it was going well. Like he was um, against Chain and Katsu, particularly, he was doing quite well. Um, so he he felt well positioned. Um, but then we uh, we played in the the calling in Vegas, and uh, that night it was really funny because we got back to the hotel room, and I think he went like he lost his first game, and the player he lost to ended up going uh, top eight. I forget who it was, but I remember uh, they they went top eight. Um, and actually, he felt like he should have won that game. He, forget <laughs> he made the mistake you shouldn't make, which is he forgot to Snapdragons as a reaction. I lost the calling okay. like that, yeah. Yeah. He had apparently the uh, like a pumped Red and the Ledger ready to go against uh, who I think it was a chain player. Um, and like they were getting on low health. And then just that turned the whole game around, of course. And it was he never came back. All that to say, we got in the room that night. And I think that that loss and forgetting to hit that reaction is really took him to a new place. It took him where I got after that first road to nationals, where he was just like, he was sitting there looking looking out out the window, and he was like, "I think I want to be really good at this game, <laughs> like really good." Uh, so then, since then, it's been on a different level as well. Of like, it's really helpful to have other people around. My brother Tim is is another person uh, who's as committed, right? Um, so having a handful of people around who are very committed to not just, you know, go win a, a tournament or something, but like, we want to be phenomenal at this game. Um, that the pursuit of being phenomenal at the game is really the driver there. Yeah, I, I think um, hopefully that answers the question. I, I yeah, kind of it, it, de it definitely does. One of my favorite moments actually so far in the entirety of this game was when we played that private sealed 
Um, we went over to you know your hotel room, and Stephen was there. Your brother was there. And I remember Dante and I went, and we uh, we were talking about kind of pitch tracking and pitching mindfully and remembering your pitch. <laughs> and usually when we do, like usually when anybody brings up the you know, subject of pitch tracking, it's like, yeah, keep it really rough, you know, just like understand you have like a power level in your deck. I remember seeing Steven just like, he was just very locked in listening and I, he played against Dante and this guy, it was, he's, he's a savage pitch tracker. Perfect remembering pitching these, you know, game ending hands I beat Dante like three times in a row. I watched him on stream yesterday and Steven is a savage limited player. Now that he is really good at pitch tracking. <laughs> <laughs> he's really, really good. Well, and that's that. Revelation came at the right moment. That was that was the night he was like, I think I want to be really good at this game, right? And then you're over there and you're like, yeah, you know, you're like, I'm tracking what they're pitching the whole time. And he's just like, wait a second. <laughs> I can be that good, right? Uh, and then immediately, the next day, he was playing that pro quest with Leviah. And he had three or four games he won where he was like, I knew they had two cards that couldn't block in their hand. And the opponent said, I got unlucky. And Steve was like, no, no, no. He's like, no. And Steven had, you know, he had the um, uh, brocade. And then he had, he'd put a red ghostly visit in his pit or his uh, banish zone. Mm -hmm. And literally, I think he won three of his games that day, knowing what his opponent could block with. And then just surprise brocade, right? It's like brocade into a ghostly visit from uh, banish zone. Yeah, it, it's that's awesome to see that. I I just I I was even more impressed when I watched him play Briar on stream the other day and like just watched him <laughs> because like it was so close to fatigue and he had just pitched a perfect end game and it was just unblockable and I was just like, man, proud to see that. <laughs> I love seeing that. I love seeing that. It's one of my favorite things about Limited is like the ability to get to your second cycle and have these really like interactive games that look you know on the surface of it could look one way and then just be completely a different way depending on which player knows what's more information effectively which is um is really cool <laughs> Zach, i, was gonna... I mean it, i was gonna say it really points to one of my other favorite parts about fab is that i'm a year and a half in and i still feel like i'm learning a ton all the time which is crazy usually, usually a year and a half in i feel like i'm 98 percent of what i could be at that point yeah massive agree i feel like every testing section that we have still learning so much whether it's about heroes whether it's about just interactions of mechanics or even just like play styles um even going back now with with uh tales of aria coming into class constructed playing you know first little class constructed games last week i feel like i'm playing the early days of flesh and blood in some ways again some of these these like um these uh tactics and these um skills that have been a bit dormant over the monarch season are coming back again and having to relearn some of those uh some of those things which is awesome especially with uh chain potentially slowing down right it, the game lasting more than six or seven turns on average changes everything it, your fundamental valuation of most cards is a little off at this point yes that is uh that's definitely what we're most excited for um i think i think i was when monarch uh when the meta kind of started to develop at least in our testing group i found it a bit frustrating because of that it was uh it was a lot of reliance on second cycle of the deck and some you know, just some more advanced cops of flesh and blood seem to be less relevant and uh not only ice, but also chain being you know, kind of being removed as well is going to significantly change um, the landscape of class construction. I think for absolutely for the better. Um, so I'm very excited. But speaking of classic constructed, Zach actually played Viscerai at, um, at Vegas. <laughs> I sure did. Yeah, you heard him say he played uh, played Bravo Road to Nats. So Viscerai was was the the spice that you. I think it was a little secret deck of yours that you brought. So tell me a little bit about that. What drew you to it? 
you thought it, you know, yeah. did you think it was well positioned and all that good stuff? Uh, well, I, I played it, so I definitely thought it was well positioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've been playing Visceray and Bravo since early on, um, and mm-hmm. I was drawn to both those characters early. And I think the, the unifying theme of both characters that I really uh, love is their, I call it their Hail Mary potential, um, which is they can just do these massive plays, right? Like some the, the big turns from Visceray can just be insane uh value and and it's because the rune chants are also like an economic engine a lot of the times and he's obviously got the skeleton and now he's got sonata so he can just kind of do some crazy stuff but bravo is pretty similar in that he can send a nine damage dominate attack with a pummel or he can send a 15 damage attack or he can there's all kinds of weird stuff he can do and so uh when we were testing though like i said earlier it, it kind of became the game of can you win in six or seven turns period uh pure aggro katsu can also win in six or seven turns which is why he's so good he can also sideboard into less aggro in the right matchups if he wants to so i think that's why katsu was so uh good in that meta as well although what was the high do you you guys know what the highest placing katsu player was uh top 16 there was one in the top 16 i think might have been 10th they were they were on stream i think in the last two rounds on a a quite aggressive katsu deck not a good day Um, for katsu (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I didn't really think about it till after how many Katsus didn't make it anywhere near, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the top eight. But anyways, um, game is fast. And so looking at Bravo, um, I think Bravo is really reliable. I think he'll constantly, now that he's got the shield, which I love, by the way. I just love that shield. Um, I think he'll constantly be like a, a safety net for me. Um, he's very good. He's very consistent. When you're playing as people that aren't as good as you, you can win like 99% of the time, regardless of what hero they're on. That's how I feel mm-hmm. about Bravo. Like it, it just doesn't go wrong, I guess is the point. Um, unlike, uh, we were talking yesterday on stream about Ranger. It's like Ranger gives you a hundred ways to lose. Um, it gives you some cool ways to win, but also like you just have opportunities to lose. But Bravo rarely feels that way. I can always block and I can always swing the hammer. It's very simple. Um, but I, particularly going into Vegas, uh, I didn't ever feel good about the dash match, ever. Mm-hmm. Not even close to good, right? It's like, that's almost an auto loss for me. And then I also, after losing to Prism in the top eight in Edmund, we were testing his Prism, and all of us were kind of just scratching our head. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know. None of us switched to it, because we're dumb, I guess. But it was it was just like, at all of our decks, all of our testing, it was like, man, even when we start sideboarding in like 10 cards ever felt great against prism um and we obviously got better with prism as we tested and so it was just like man this is this is tough um and especially if you don't know what you're doing it's it's very bad so uh that's when i ended up switching to visray because while i felt like his statistical win rate against you know the entire meta uh even the top five decks let's just say that was maybe a little lower on average Two things that I felt really good about were uh, his ability to win against Dash and Prism was higher, right? It wasn't an auto loss by any stretch of the imagination. And then secondarily, when my opponent is playing against Viscerae, especially the way I had it built for the first time, I think my odds are like 30% higher win, right? Like, it's just like, when you play me 10 times in a row, by like game 10, we're at the actual odds of this match. But like, Early, my early games in all of our testing, no matter, even if someone had seen my deck before, the first couple of times they were playing as my deck with any given deck, 
they were just losing most of the time. Um, so I felt pretty good about that. And my uh, my thinking ultimately panned out. My round one opponent was Dash. And literally, I was like, I don't care if you beat me or not, but you've, you've literally validated my decision not to play Bravo. Because I think I would have lost this game definitely. I ended up losing the game anyway, which is funny. Um, but I definitely think I would have lost that game if I had been on Bravo. So it didn't really matter. And then ironically, or not even ironically, unfortunately, I guess, out of my seven rounds, I played one Katsu and zero chain. Yep. That is a uh, that is Classic. something that happened a lot. There's a lot of people who played all chains, a lot of people played no chains, and then you know crazy distributions throughout, you know, in between that. Yeah, big big events tend to to do that, which is actually some of the discussions we had in testing about being prepared for anything because you literally could play against um against anything. I was just gonna say as well, like, like a friend, eh? <laughs> yeah, you can, yeah, and yeah, and you can't underestimate the power of like the unknown. To your point about this, right, right, like you come in with a hero, you flip it up, your opponent doesn't know. First of all what you're even going to be doing whether you're like on an otk strategy whether you're on a like an aggressive strategy they've got a sideboard to try and work that out and then you play the game they don't even know what you're doing half the time they just got to try and enact a game plan um so you get such big edges to your point right i i actually so i ended up losing my first game winning five in a row and then had a draw against dash in the last round mm-hmm. and after the game was over um he was like man that was crazy he's like i totally sideboarded thinking you were on otk completely um, and I wasn't on OTK. I didn't really even talk about my deck, but essentially I was trying to build a Viscera deck that could win in five or six turns if my opponent didn't want to block. So Chain or Aggro Katsu, a lot of time they don't want to block. But then in longer form games against like Bravo or Prism, I had the ability to kind of flex into a mid-range OTK-ish, right? It's not as strong. I wasn't running a lot of the filtering and just like a, a lot of the stuff that you would see in a traditional OTK situation. But Prism, you have to bring enough heat in a single turn that she can't just cover it up. Um, that was something I kept running into in testing was like, I would get Prism down to one, I would be at 20 health as Visceray, and then I could never win the game. Because like, I would just keep putting enough pressure on where they could cover it up. And if I didn't put any pressure on, they would just beat me, right? Mm-hmm. One or the other would eventually happen. Um, so trying to strike that balance between fast enough to beat Chain... But also, I can, you know, because at any point, ultimately, uh, you can just play Fundamentals Fab, which is I'll just start blocking with most of my hand, and then I'll gain any number of rune chance that I can, and I'll keep doing that until I have 22 rune chance, and I can pop uh, my Skeleta and play my Sonata and hope to YOLO you right off the board, right? Um, and being able to, I think that, uh, that's why I, uh, in most of my games that I won, um, various moments right you can make it look like even early look like you're doing otk and so they start playing a certain way and then you just stop doing that and then all of a sudden they're not they haven't been setting up for that that condition in the game right um so there's definitely some head games i can play play with viscerae i also just really um he's he's a hero i enjoy the most um so his i don't know what kind of math it is but it's non-linear and it's fun math for me to calculate Obviously, he has cards that can play any card from your deck, and he has cards that can get any attack from your discard pile. And he's got rune chants, which make big things not cost you anything. And he's got the ability to play, you know, non-attacks as uh, instants with rattle bones and all kinds of bizarre timing stuff. Um, so he's also a hero. That's why I think people playing against him with a deck for the first time can just lose, because there's a lot of moments where it you're not sure if this is when you should be blocking the arcane damage or not. I'm looking at my hand, it's like, well, if they take an arcane damage, I go down this route, and it's really bad for them. 
Uh, and if they don't, I go down this other route, and that's okay too. Um, but like, it's just hard for them to know. It's not just like, should I block this or not? You can't just look at it and say, this card will produce four damage if I play it on offense, or block for three if I block now. Which one's more important? Uh, it's it's more deceptive than that. Yeah, mm. this is hard to play. I I, I played this right in uh, my first local, you know, like first armory event with um with Tales of Ari the other day, and I had a ton of fun, but also. Of a <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like the briar math on steroids yeah and i think that's a that's a good way to kind of transition to like a, a final question is that you know chain is maybe gone um but the, i think the the door for visor has really been cracked wide open if it was not already open before mind you um because you got some significant upgrades uh in that deck and it seems to be better positioned than it was in my opinion so what what are i know since both Hayden and yourself, Zach, are big Viscerai fans. What are you thinking for Tales of Aria in regards to Viscerai? Is it something you're looking at? And kind of specifically, what cards are getting you excited right now? Yeah, I, I'm definitely looking at Viscerai. So uh, the thing about it is, what, what are we at? We're at the end of September. So it's like five weeks till Nationals, right? Slash Orlando. Um, and in that time, two of my weekends, I'm going to a calling. Uh, and the callings themselves are sealed with a, a top eight draft. And then even at the national championship, I'm curious. I, I thought I had no chance at all to qualify, honestly. Um, but then based on some spreadsheet I saw floating around the other day, whatever saint put that together, um, it's maybe possible that I qualify at this point. So we'll see if it, it matters or not. But the reason I mentioned that is, uh, the, you know, there's six rounds out of 16 that are draft for Aria, which is a whole different ball game. <laughs> that's a whole different format than constructed or even sealed, honestly. And so I'm looking at five weeks of time where there are multiple sealed events I'm playing in. They're legitimate events. There is uh, potentially a constructed draft event that's a legitimate event. Even if I don't make that, I'm going to Orlando, so there's a constructed event there that I would play in. Um, there's a lot to get ready for, right? Uh, there, there's a whole lot on the plate. So because of all that, I would naturally be looking at Bravo and Viseray, both of which I think got better. Uh, Bravo getting the one-handed hammer and the shield is really critical for that dash match. And then I think both of them also get better because Chain's not around, right? Or at least mm -hmm. if he is around, it's just a different ballgame. I think he's going to be a little slower. And so, like, both of those decks I'm really comfortable with, both those decks are, I think, well-positioned for this meta. Because even if ice becomes a big deal, I'm not convinced that it will. But even if it is a big deal, uh, Bravo oftentimes has extra resources around. It's not going to totally mess up his turns to have to pay a couple extra. And Viseray, uh, you know, classic Viseray math, uh, reductions get applied after cost increases. So he has a bunch of attacks that are, you know, minus eight because you have eight rune chance and only cost three. And then it's like, oh, those ice tokens don't matter at all. Like... <laughs> Okay, I guess I'll play this free card for free still. Um, but all that to say, I think they're both well-positioned. I love playing both characters. I'm experienced with both characters. Both got massive upgrades. And for Viscerate particularly, those Spellbound Creepers. Oof. Just the heat, man. Scratch Just that wizardish, baby. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, I was previously on Snapdragon Scalers uh, because I was on a lot of those one-cost attacks. Mm -hmm. And uh, free go again in a game that's only going to go six turns. That's a That's a great great uh piece of equipment to be on and this is basically that on a 
whole new level. Because um, being able to play at instant speed on attacks that get that have go again to give you those free action points, um, and then you know you might get a get to do it a couple times, right? Uh, it's crazy. It's actually I saw that that card. So the first thing I saw was Duskblade. I thought, man, this is just this is my deck, but better. Like it's just going to be easier. Then it got banned. So <laughs> strikes and gutters. Um, but yeah, the, the spellbound creepers are the main thing for me. And then even the Rosetta uh, Thorn, the sword. Um, I think in matches where my opponent's not healing, I was on the um, uh, my goodness, Reaping Blade. That's mm-hmm. one where they can't heal, right? Yeah. Yep. So uh, that's pretty good against Bravo and Bolton ish and maybe prism if they're going super defensively so it'll probably stay in my sideboard but that rosetta thorn two and two uh my deck is already playing non-attacks and attacks uh it's just it just fits right in there uh so very excited about viscerae uh the other the generic runeblade cards i don't know the name of it but the zero cost majestic then all your attacks gain. yeah that's it uh definitely gonna be looking at that right uh it's blue it's a zero cost non attack action. We like the stock. Um, it also naturally like meet and greets one of my favorite cards. So that that potentially is just making that even easier when you don't have rune chance. Non attack meet and greet. They still have to cover up um, at least the arcane damage if they don't want you to have go again. Uh, so anyway, so that those are definitely the uh, the standouts. The the attack is fine. I, I don't know that I'll end up playing it. Uh, constructed the one arcane damage off of um, Singeing Blade is not. Super tantalizing, but it's fine. It's a fine attack. Yep. What about you? What are you looking at with Viscerae over there, Hayden? Do you know what? The, all you're talking about, Zach, here, I agree with so much of it. It sounds like we were on very similar pages, uh, to be honest. <laughs> um, Spellbound Creepers, I think, is like a massive, massive upgrade for the way that Viscerae can and wants to be able to adapt its play. Um, this is funny. Like, Spellbound Creepers, you read that card and you go, oh, if I don't get like multiple uses out of this, like, is this card actually that good? Uh, yes it is <laughs> it has so much utility like the, that effect has so much utility um that generally you can get one use out of it plus a block or multiple uses out of it uh, depending on how your deck's built so i think that card's huge um yeah i mean i also agree on rosetta thorn as well so i think brendan i think we're gonna have to play this uh, list that i've been playing this week and uh, on camera next week get some games in with it because it's uh it's it's a super fun list and i think it's i think the, the viscera is just well positioned in general um so yeah excited about it <laughs> first deck i'm gonna sleeve and uh it takes a lot for me to sleeve a deck it's true can't do oh, it uh, you know it, you guys are fellow members of the uh secret runeblade society so it would make sense that if you can't play chain you might pivot over to uh you know his friend viscerae um I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys come up with i'll definitely watch that stream um and just I'm, I think the, the new set coming out does this, but also Chain kind of going away. He was the North Star of the meta. So um, I'm excited to see whatever shows up in that ProQuest in Dallas, honestly, because um, that'll really be the first major event where I think people are really bringing the heat, um, and then we're going to get to see it play out. And Do you guys have any predictions on who you think will win that tournament? Uh, yeah, we do. PTR? Yeah, so we, I think Hayden, Hayden cast his vote as, as Katsu Control. Yeah, I definitely didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was it Saber Bolton then? What was it? No. I see. Hayden, what, what, yeah, who do you think actually is going to take it? Uh, actually, I think probably uh, Bravo has, or Dash have the best uh, possible chances of taking out like a, a week one or week two event, I think. I think the lists are going to be like tuned. People probably aren't going to be as focused on the PTI because they're probably focused on 
um, you know, getting some sealed games in. So I think lists that are already existing and probably doing pretty well are in a good position. But if not that, I do think that uh, Viserai would have a pretty good chance or Prism would be the next two. But those are my kind of two tiers, I think, of the, the top four heroes. Mm-hmm. Like, I like nods. You mentioned Dash. So I, I've heard people, you know, holding services and whatnot for the uh, passing of Dash. You think you think she still got the goods? Uh, yeah. So it's all about theory, right? So like Rampart is just perfect theory versus Dash, but um, Dash might be able to adjust by playing less of a you know induction chamber plasma purifier based build, more of like kind of a boost mm-hmm. um, that could still be quite good, and they would also have the flexibility, which is like a natural thing that Dash does to side back into induction chamber plasma and to other matchups where it needs it um so it's all about does the theory hold and sometimes in flesh and blood the theory doesn't hold like snag is my favorite you know obviously my favorite uh <laughs> my favorite example of that but it looks so good it looks like absolute hoser just like you know finally making this auto loss playable um but Dash is just, it's, it's a very adaptive deck. I mean, it has a lot of different strategies, and I think it might be able to get around the shield. I don't know yet. It's just, it's total theory, but uh, I don't think it's dead. Some of it's going to a cockroach. just won't go away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Man, Dash, I, I, I'm fine with it. It doesn't bother me that it's in the game, but it's definitely, as a Bravo player, like, just ptsd from from that hero mm-hmm. um, but i i feel similarly about ice um you know there's two heroes that can play ice a lot of people saw that initially and they were like oh my goodness the economic uh, economics of the game are going to completely shift and the game's going to slow down and i'm looking at it and it's like i mean i don't know how many players out of 100 are actually going to bring old him or lexi right um and even then it's like can't you just up your resource curve a little right mm-hmm. like i mean is your turn really over with one or two ice tokens or do you just take a slightly different path and heroes that can alter like bravo is a good example he has a lot of blues but you know you might switch me from swinging a nine damage uh, spinal crush to swinging a six damage sword but like if you're not bringing the heat outside of that it's like i'm still blocking for six or nine and swinging the, the hammer like it mm-hmm. So I, th- yeah, I think the answer to that question actually changed with the ban. So pre-ban, um, ice was going to be, in my opinion, was going to be quite disruptive and very popular because it addressed like the the, the biggest problem in the format, which was chain. Um, the iteration of chain that we played and even that you saw played in top eight as well that was different from our deck would have really struggled into um, ice-based decks most likely. Um, but since that, that has kind of, I mean, I honestly think that chain is in a is in a significantly worse spot than he was. So with Chain maybe moving out of the meta, um, I think that the kind of... With what we'd have expected, a lot of people jumping to Ice to immediately kind of combat that, now that it's going to naturally be gone uh, with the banning, I think they'll be way less relevant. I thought it was going to be extremely relevant because if you look at the the last meta, it was really... I mean, we really saw aggro decks, so Chain, Katsu aggro, and then we saw, like I guess, you know, kind of Prism too. So like old him, just old him ice and then, you know, Lexi ice to maybe a lesser extent, like a kind of Lexi taxes. Yeah. I mean, it really would have really derailed like Agrokatsu and chain. So I think less so now. And I do agree with you after the ban before that was when I was kind of making the forecast where it's like, yeah, I expect a lot of people to be on ice because you just, you got to attack the elephant in the room, which was chain. I agree. Brendan, do you have a prediction for who's going to win in Dallas? Yeah, so it depends who's playing, I think. Um, early meta, I agree with you. Like, I would be on a mid-range deck, um, and probably a mid-range deck that had been built before, and maybe something, you know, I mean, Hayden's kind of right with the nail on the head with 
with Bravo. Um, something like that does seem very likely. But if I was playing it, I would need some testing. But I think I might actually land on like a Reinar or a Levia. <laughs> Probably Reinar. So Reinar is just really well positioned, right? Because it, it, it yeah, just... you guys got to play this Levia deck. We did. Hayden beat me. Hayden beat me. We did. We played it. We played it. Hayden. Hayden That's did great. beat me. He cheated on reload. You know, game <laughs> rule violation. No. But uh, it's it's pretty good. Like it, it is really good. But Reinar is just so well positioned. You got to think of like right. So first question you got to answer yourself is if you want to play in this new meta. How do I beat Prism? And you don't just want to beat Prism. You want to slap Prism. You want that to be a buy because it's going to be a lot of your matches, right? So how do I beat Prism? Okay, good. How do I deal with Ice? Probably a mid-range deck. Reiner satisfies that. How do I deal with fatigue and dirty strategies? It's really popular in like a really an early meta, especially after we saw a sort of fatigue deck kind of win the calling, um, if you could call the deck that, that this strategy will become more popular. So how do you really beat those strategies? Like, well, you have evasion. So intimidate and use brush and beat them. That's evasion. Stacking big, big five grand hand blood spell. So I think Reinar is incredibly well positioned. But the caveat here is that if Dash can survive by you know becoming this more boost oriented kind of mid-range aggressive deck and less reliant on the induction chambers and possible fury hires, that is also not fantastic for Reinar. Um, but right now I probably would be looking at Reinar with a with a first glance, but untested. It's passionate. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned something that I want to point out too that is also incredible to me about flesh and blood, which is I think how many different ways you can play the same hero. Yep. I think that's so critical because, like, you know, if you buy into a single character or class um, and, like, maybe OTK Viscerate isn't good enough right now, uh, but if you can also play him aggro or mid-range, as an example, um, I, I really dig that. So same with Dash, you know, I, I do hope that Shield coming out is not just the end of Dash uh, for whatever whatever that means. And even then, it's like, let's say Bravo gets twice as popular. and He's 20% of the field. It's like I don't know. Like, is is Dash really that scared? Like, does is it is it an auto loss or is it just like, am I down to fifty fifty? Am I down to thirty percent win chance? Um, it, Bravo would have to be a significant portion of the field because it's just Bravo and Old Him that can even run the shield. Mm-hmm. Um, so then she still got the same match against everyone else, right? And then the big question is, can she just change how she's playing and still win? Yeah, kind of like Prism adjusting to the Bravo matchup, which is like, you know, just quickly, if you want to pick up Bravo, like you've got to be able to beat Aura Prism and also like getting, you know, double or triple Tome of Davidia and Aura locked, which is kind of out of your control sometimes as the Bravo player. And that feels pretty bad. So how do you shore up the Prism matchup? It's going to be like, you know, 30% of the field or plus, like you equipping two Titan's Fists and a, and a Time Skippers to just smack Auras around or what is it? <laughs> Yeah, and honestly, like, uh, if the meta hadn't been prepared for such a big shift, I would expect to see a lot of Prism mm-hmm. at ProQuest. But two things for me. I, I, I think with the new set and with Chain kind of going out, I won't be surprised to see a lot of variety. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it kind of gives people permission to explore again, right? It's not as defined. It's not as every every person you're watching talking about the same things and the, the super defined way to play the game. Uh, the other thing I would say is, like, Prism is a lot to manage as a player. Um, and so, like, you know, it, I, I say this a lot, which is you have a 500-person tournament. There's probably only 100 to 150 players at the tournament that can even win that tournament legitimately, like, just in terms of skills at the, at the game. Uh, so it really, the question that actually matters is not what percent of that field will be Prism, 
you, you want to be able to beat a player. You don't want an auto loss to just a, someone who's average at the game, right? But like, what are those 150 people playing? Um, and I do think that they are good enough to play Prism quite well, probably. But at the same time, I don't know. That is a character that takes a. Every time I see a Prism player, I can tell they've been using a lot of their brain, right? Um, and it's a long tournament, right? Where the cut to top eight, uh, ProQuest is a little shorter, right? I think it's six rounds with the cut to top eight. Um, but I don't. I, I, it's an interesting. I, I'm curious the the percentage of the overall population, right? And what they're playing, even at the ProQuest, is interesting to me. Then also, even the percentage of like the top fifty players and what they're playing is an, another kind of signal. Uh, which I'll be curious to see what that that actually shakes out to be. So we actually have some hard data on this subject, roughly, and that's a sense in in regards to Prism. That's it. Prism players are actually Prism players. We saw Prism have the worst <laughs> conversion ratio throughout Road to Nationals, but still show up in good numbers. And that's not me dogging on Prism, which everybody calls me out for. It's just it means that like the people that want to play Prism played it no matter what the results were, and eventually that obviously that worked out. It won the calling. Um, but it shows that there's something about that hero that people identify with, whether it's the play style, the art, or just whatever it is, um, that that deck is going to be popular almost no matter how good or bad it is to a certain extent, which I think that the popularity was far exceeding, you know, kind of what the numbers were showing in Road to National. So I think that now that it has become kind of like the deck to beat, um, I do expect it actually to be extremely popular at the PTI. Yeah, well, in that case, I hope there's a ton of Reinar players. <laughs> I'll be one of them. <laughs> Reinar, show up, please. Yeah. I need you. Now, hopefully, we'll uh, we'll just be in day two of the. the That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you both better be in day two. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> oh yeah, love love the X Warner, but yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I know they might add some more rounds. Maybe it's it's, t- it's tough. Are they changing the number of rounds? Maybe. Um, it depends, right? So, like, there's a lot that goes into that. It's not just like. Because because it's a production thing with Channel Fireball and there's obviously a schedule, it's probably not as easy as adding them, even though it makes logistical sense with more people. Uh, so we'll have to see if they can kind of move that around fast enough. I think that it is overwhelmingly that the feedback is that, like, please don't do this again. Um, please don't make it so you make day two and it doesn't matter. And please don't make it so it's X1 or bust on top eight because that doesn't feel amazing. Um, so I think that there's it's very likely that they've heard that feedback and, you know, James being a competitive player and a lot of the player, you know, a lot of the people at Legend Stories, you know, being professional magic players and having you know, kind of played these terms before, I think that it's extremely likely that that system will change uh, kind of for the better. Cause I, 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 even when I talked to someone like Dante, someone who profited from that um, in a sense, <laughs> he got four, like his feedback as well is like, no, like it's not good. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I, I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier, right? Which is their uh, actual awareness and understanding of what it is to be a player at these events. And, you know, I mean, you were top 64, Brendan, and decided to drop because you just didn't have a chance. It was and, a big mistake, actually, in retrospect, because they changed the, uh, the ELO. <laughs> you know, did you see that announcement where the ELO is now separated with limited and constructed? Oh, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What, why was that a mistake for you then? So because if my net ELO, because I had played both limited and constructed callings before, probably would have uh, been at greater risk if I had played day two um, because they switched it and all of my limited ELO just went to limited. Um, the constructed event I did play and I went 5-2 in, in New Zealand. I actually would have probably stood to gain quite a bit by um, having mm-hmm. a positive record or at least like 3-1 on day two. So, <laughs> yeah, that's still, you know, ultimately, like, it's pretty rough if you go 
uh, if you make top 64 and like they're asking you to come back to play another day of the tournament and you don't have a chance to win. Yeah. And there's a PTI at the same time where it's like the yeah. EV is huge. Yeah. Um, so that, that's just, I, I do hope they make that adjustment, but even if they don't make it by Dallas, cause that's really soon, mm-hmm. uh, I would expect any of that kind of feedback to make it to them and them to listen and care and to try to make it better. Cause you know, even like I ended up going five, one and one, and then it's like, it feels like a pretty good day. Um, and then you just don't make the cut, you know, yeah. you don't come back for day two. And it's like, Elo's great. I'm I'm feeling pretty good about that, right? Someone posted that the other day. And it was like, oh, wow, that's, that's crazy. Um, but yeah, no, it, it all that said, even with that, that hiccup, it's crazy how much, at least from the games I played, how much better this organized play everything is. Um, and I, I'm actually happy they separated out limited and uh, constructed. So am I. Yeah. Despite the results kind of like not being good for me in the end, like I'm very happy. Like the, the philosophy behind it is fantastic, right? Like you have players that specialize in limited and you have players that specialize in constructed and you've got to be the complete player. Um, you know, like you see with the dual format at nationals to be the best player in the world, which is how it should be in my opinion. And no, I, I, I agree. And I also think like I was after the ELO got posted, I didn't realize they'd separated them. And so thinking about Dallas and Cincinnati, it's like kind of really, you don't want to disincentivize people from playing, right? And part of ELO events is that there is always a risk of playing and that you'll lose. And if you're highly rated in ELO, you'll lose a lot of points to people that aren't if you lose to someone that is lower ranked than you. But like, given how different limited and constructed are, and even just the reality that like, I played against a couple limited uh, pools in in Vegas that were just like, man, I don't I don't know. We could have played that a hundred times, and yeah. uh, I don't know how many of those I would have won. So I'm curious uh, how many rounds Dallas ends up being, how that cut works and whatnot, um, how many players are playing obviously affects how many people make various days and cuts and all that business. But um, thinking about you know suddenly Elo got posted and now I have something to lose. And it was like, man, if I open up a pool that I'm not happy with, do I just drop immediately, right? So you probably like, still play just in the context of like what you're currently rated and even when I'm currently rated too. Um, we, we definitely still play. It's like, you know, but if you were like 1800 and you opened like, nobody's 1800 yet, but if you open the worst pool ever, yeah, that'd be a consideration. But if you are at that ELO rating already, you probably have secured all your invites. Yeah. You're probably you know, consistent play on the Pro Tour. You've got your world's invite. That kind of player cares all less. It's more the player on the cusp. And what was weird about the calling is that um, because I played in the ones before COVID, my ELO was like 113 points higher than every single person at the event. So that's why it was like this weird disproportion. But in the future, you know, if you are high enough rated to like, you know, essentially care, you'll probably already be on the Pro Tour anyway. Do we know, have they said how they're using the ELO rating? Not you not you yet. talk like you you know know how that's going to function. It's I would not love ex- to know. Not, didn't they? I so I don't know if I'm still misquoting, <laughs> but I believe that they wrote a sentence where they said that Pro Tour invites will go out, um, you know, partly based on rated ELO. I, I have is, I haven't seen that, but I have seen that they've said that they will qualify you for national and global level events, which is what they've said for the ELO. Events. So, but nothing more yeah. than that right now. Matt uh, Hayden knows Magic, so Hayden, if in Magic the Gathering, could you qualify the Pro Tour based off yes? Yeah, you could. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that would make sense, right? Because you want, like, if you, you know, you'd be chaining Pro Tours mm-hmm. kind of over and over exactly. again. And while you're at Pro Tours, you can pick up more PTIs to replace the one you use. So on and so on. <laughs> exactly. Or, like, you can keep your ELO rating high enough that you keep getting invited. 
For sure. You play against higher rated players at the pro tour as well. Cause they're probably, and uh, yeah, it all kind of works out in the end. There are obviously these funky ones where like that first calling, but ultimately the system but, is really good and they've separated yeah. it. And ELO is a system that works better over time, right? Um, it rewards consistency over a long period of time. And I think it makes sense too, to have your pro tours uh, be gated in a way because like you're going to a pro tour Everyone there probably has a high enough elo that losing to another player there isn't going to cost you an unbelievable amount of points. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really wants it makes it where your pro players once they get there want to go to pro tours, and it's a little riskier to go to something like a calling, um, which they can still go to, of course. And if you've got the goods, you've got the goods, um, so you shouldn't be too worried about it because you'll just win most of your games, right? Um, but ultimately, it's like it could also incentivize very highly rated players to stick to the pro tour <laughs> and the world championship level events so that they, you know, aren't putting that at risk as often. Um, but I'm curious to see how that plays out. I've never been a part of such an elaborate organized play system. Yeah. I think the, I think the way it plays out is that if you are high enough rated that you would be, sac- it, you know, like you said, there, it takes time. Um, but if, let's say we're, you know, a couple of years down, if you are high enough rated to where it's like, yeah, you're sac- you're like, you know, you're, there's massive disparities between you and an average GP player. You're probably so high rated that you have like a, pl- a plethora of PTIs and you don't care, <laughs> I would assume. Um, but yeah. I'm not 100% sure. I think the, you know, I'm optimistic. Me too. <laughs> well, and you know, you don't need to be an optimist if you're really good at the game. Uh, you can just go to any event you want and it won't matter that much, right? Like, I think if someone is in, it's like it is in chess at least, it's like if you're at 1900 ELO, uh, you're probably going to win most of your games no matter what's happening sure sure that them's just the beats yeah the top tables yeah yeah we'll see there's there's obviously more variants than this game than chess so uh we'll we'll see see what happens and thankfully so (laughs) yeah a little bit of saber bolt in there no i'm kidding no more saber bolt (laughs) say it again um anyway thank uh again zach i want to thank you so much for joining us we had a great conversation i know we always do but it's awesome how we you know we transition from you know, learning more about team covenant learning more about yourself and then we just you know kind of degenerate and just talking about the game <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah again thank you so much uh, i want to give you a little bit of time to go ahead and you know plug team covenant plug your stream schedule and your podcast um, and then we'll sign off yeah, well, uh, again, thank you guys so much for having me on. It's uh, <laughs> had a great time. Uh, talking about Fab is not exactly a hard thing for me to do. I'm, I'm a huge fan of this game, huge fan of the publisher, and uh, love what you guys are doing. So please keep doing it. Also, to all the other content creators out there, um, you guys are doing a phenomenal job, all of them. Uh, it's so important, all the little discords and communities and playtest groups and uh, people hosting events and players hosting events at stores and stores hosting events. And people creating content and videos and podcasts and articles and tools and all that stuff. It's crazy how critical it is. And it's a lot of work. I, I know it's a lot of work, especially for people that aren't, you know, fortunate enough. Like we are, this is what we're doing during the day, during it, you know, this is our job. Uh, so uh, just kudos to everyone who keeps putting in um, those hard yards because it is a ton of work. It's very little reward. Uh, as I've experienced, most people uh, that love what you're doing don't say that much, and the people that really don't like what you're doing say the most. <laughs> so it can be, it can be tough, right? But uh, I do encourage all, everyone who's watching this, who also creates content, to keep doing it. It's really critical for this community in this game, and uh, it's an amazing community. So shout out to everyone for doing that. If you're unfamiliar, TeamCovenant.com, you can find out a lot more about us. Uh, we stream every Tuesday for Fabulous Tuesdays uh, on our YouTube channel. 
And you can find us on all the relevant social media channels and whatnot. And if you're looking for somewhere to talk about the game, check out our Discord channel. And we'd love to have you. We have a really laid back and uh, just enjoyable group of people hanging out on our Discord channel. And even our live chats for our streams, also just incredible people uh, that make up our community and we'd love to have you. And if you're ever in Tulsa and you're watching this, uh, you know, not in 2021, check in with us, see if we have our store open and stop by and pay us a visit. Uh, I think you'll you'll have a good time and you'll be hopefully impressed. And again, thank you guys for having me on. And if you ever want me back, I'll be here. Awesome. Well, thank you. I do want to mention that if you are in Tulsa or just around Tulsa around October 9th, uh, that weekend there is a sealed event. So if you want to play against me or Zach or just say, you know, see us and say hi, Team Covenant is hosting an awesome sealed event to prepare you for the October calling. So I'm going to be there. Super excited, but get your practice in. But thank, uh, sorry, <laughs> thank Zach. <laughs> thank you so much again for joining us and for everyone that listened. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you next week. Thanks,